This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, we are at the midpoint of the Making Room initiative, and uh, we're marking this season uh, in a couple of ways. One is by working through this devotional uh, together as a church. Uh, They should be scattered throughout your rows. We'd love for you to have one of these. Um, This is uh, a two-week devotional, and uh, we're kind of starting you can start whatever you want, I guess, but we're, we're starting kind of together as a church uh, tomorrow with these. Uh, it's a, a two-week devotional, a study of hospitality as the vocation of the church, kind of the why behind this building that we're putting together and, and adding on to our current building. It's based on Romans fifteen seven, which is on that big banner in the, in the commons, uh, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so this will help you think through that and walk through that. There's also a commitment card in here. If you were here uh, last year, you'll recognize these. Um, you probably filled one of these out. Uh, but going into the, the second half of this uh, initiative, we, we'd love for you to put some thought into prayer into this and then fill it out again, even if you did last year or maybe for the first time this year. And we're going to turn these in together on November 26, so two weeks from today. If you were here last year, it's a chance to uh, just sort of reaffirm uh, your, your commitment, finish strong. Uh, perhaps maybe you're assessing things and you're able to, to increase, uh, and, and that's something you can indicate on there as well. And then if you're newer, if you didn't have a chance to fill it out, it's a chance for you to, to join in. We really want this to be the effort of the whole of our church. You can also find out more about the Making Room Initiative on the website. There's a tab at the top that just says Making Room. You can learn all about it there. So that's one part of what we're doing here. Uh, the other part is, is we're marking this season, the midpoint uh, of our Making Room initiative by studying the book of Ruth together, which we began last week. And Ruth really is a, a beautiful story exemplifying that verse, Romans fifteen seven. welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. There's not a more illustrative book maybe in the whole Bible that sort of spells out what that might look like. What is the story of Ruth after all? We said this last week. I mean, at base, the story of Ruth is the story of an outsider foreigner and somebody vulnerable being brought into the very family of the people of God, right? An outsider coming in. That really is the hope of all mission, isn't it? That people on the outside would be brought into the very family of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why uh, we want to embrace this missionary vocation of hospitality in our church. And so uh, let's look together today at Ruth chapter two. We looked at Ruth one last week, Ruth chapter two today. It's printed for you in your bulletins. It's also, uh, you can find it in the Bibles in your rows on page, beginning on page 222. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a little long, so just buckle up, hang in there. It's an engaging story. Um, I think you'll like it. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? 
And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one alone, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your help this morning in both understanding and applying this passage, both in our own lives and together as a community, as a church. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to help us, to move in us, open our minds, open our hearts to your will and to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I grew up on a cul-de-sac, which was a Really great experience as a kid, right? Lots of other children to play with and pretty safe little area to do so. And we played all manner of games together. Um, anytime, really, when school wasn't in, we were outside playing. And, you know, as we got older, those games were mostly sports, right? Baseball and basketball, football and soccer. But when we were younger and even when we were older, when we couldn't think of anything else to do, the main game was tag, right? You guys know tag, right? It's probably the most, you know, sort of commonplace of kids' games, 
It is kind of a funny game, though, when you think about it, Tag. I mean, one moment you're standing around with your friends, the next moment you're running around all crazy, right? Alone, apart from others, running chaotically, all with the goal of dodging this impending danger, right? A danger so frightening, you can't even really give it a name. You can simply call it it, right? But you take some heart, even as you're running from it, knowing that there is a place of safety if you could just get there. There is a place of security if you could just get there. We call it base, right? And at my house, it was the lamppost in the front yard. But in all the danger and all the chaos, if you can just reach base, you'd be safe. And in fact, you can hear kids playing tag. That's one of the things you'll likely hear them call out all the time, right? You can't get me. I'm on base, Right? It's like kind of a taunt to the enemy, right? Before the powerful forces of it, right? It's this taunt. You can't get me. I'm on base. And in some forms of tag, right, uh, those who are on base already can help others who are not, right? You can kind of form like a human chain, right? One hand on the lamppost, one hand on base, and one hand sort of reaching out, right, to help others, to rescue them. Well, I heard one preacher describe the missionary role of the church this way, right? That we're meant to be base for others. We're like base, or at least we're like the person who has one hand on base, reaching out, trying to rescue others who are running. And if you think about the the complicated history of the church with its neighbors, you know, at times the church has seen its neighbors as it, and when we've run and we've hid from them. Sometimes we've been it, (laughs) We've been the ones chasing down others at times with bad intentions, sometimes with good intentions, you know, trying to win people over. But I would submit to you that the church at its very best, its most effective when it sees itself, when the church sees herself as base, as a place of safety and security, a place of refuge and shelter. I mean, where are you sitting right now? You know what the name for this place I mean, not New City, but the name for this kind of place, this is a a sanctuary, right? Sanctuary is just a fancy word for base. Maybe you've heard of sanctuary laws, right? A place where you can go for safety and security where nobody can touch you legally. My daughter and I were in England this summer, and and you could still see in a lot of these English churches, these old churches, sanctuary posts, you know, just usually inside the narthex where if you could make it there, you'd be safe, right? From those who want to get you, those who want to prosecute you in some way. You'd be secure. More broadly, sanctuary is a place where in a world where everyone is chasing each other, you can find shelter. You can find refuge base. When Boaz talks to Ruth in verse 12, he tells her, he says, you found this kind of sanctuary, this kind of base in the kindness of God. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, you have found the sheltering kindness of the Lord. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that. We're going to see the sheltering kindness of God in the law of God, right? Like sort of woven into the very structure of Israelite society. We're going to see the sheltering kindness in the providence of God. That is the way he orders and orchestrates things behind the scenes. We're going to see the sheltering kindness in the people of God, particularly how Boaz treats Ruth, becomes base for Ruth. All right, so let's talk about it that way this morning. First, sheltering kindness in the law of God. 
And if you're here last week or you just know Ruth chapter one, you know that the story begins with catastrophe, actually a series of catastrophes. There's a famine. Uh, Naomi and her family go to Moab to look for food and a better life. But her husband dies while they're there, and then her two sons die while they're there. And so it's sorrow upon sorrow. It's calamity upon calamity. And so Naomi returns to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, joining her. And chapter 1 ends with Naomi coming back home. People recognize her, and they say, oh, look, it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me uh, Naomi any longer. Naomi means pleasant. Instead, I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter, for I left this place full. Now I return empty. That's how chapter one ends. Chapter two begins with Ruth going out into the fields to glean, to look for food. And to understand this chapter, we really do need to talk about gleaning for a minute because it's all over the place here, right? It's mentioned 12 times in this chapter. Uh, Verse two, verse three, verse seven, verse eight, verse 15 twice, verse 16, verse 17 twice, verse 18, verse 19 Verse 23. And so we have to know something about what gleaning is in order to understand the passage. Gleaning was cooked into the structure of Israel's society as a way to provide for the poor, to provide for outsiders and widows and orphans. The Levitical laws of the Old Testament said that you had to leave a portion of your crop, including the edges, right, of the grain fields, to be available to be collected by the needy. I'll read to you just from Leviticus 19 here, really briefly. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So in the law of Moses, the uh, people of Israel, they could not maximize their profits. Right? They, they were forbidden from maximizing every last bit. There was a limit to what they were allowed to harvest. They couldn't go edge to edge. Why? To provide room for the needy. And notice what it says at the end. It says, don't reap to the edge. Leave the fallen grapes and the sheaves and the poor uh, for the sojourners. And then it says just simply, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, the motive, right? The, uh, the, the fundamental thing under this concern for the poor and the oppressed is the very character of God. There's something about the character of God that is to be matched by a pattern of behavior in his covenant people. Seen even more clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 10 verses 18 to 19. He, that is God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner or the foreigner He gives them food and clothing. And then it says to now God's people, love the sojourner, therefore, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Because God is a God who rescues slaves and cares for the poor. And it says, and by the way, you all are a part of this. Because God is a God who has done this for you and rescues slaves and cares for the poor. God's people now are to share this concern. And this became the vocation of Israel built into the very structure of society was the prevention of, to harm, uh, of harm to strangers and widows and orphans and the poor. And then in the New Testament, this is the mission of Jesus, right? Who did he spend most of his time with? He goes to the poor. He goes to the vulnerable. He goes to the needy. And then it becomes the vocation of Christ's church. There is a sheltering kindness baked into the very law of God. 
Second, there's a sheltering kindness in the providence of God. And by providence here, I mean the way that God orchestrates and controls and rules the world, right? How he's in control of the things that are happening in the world. There's kind of an inside joke throughout the book of Ruth, right? The inside joke is this, right? All these, you know, we as the the narrator knows, we know that something's going on here, but the characters don't, right? These things seem to happen to them as sheer coincidence. Characters don't know the significance of the things at first, but then by the end of the story, we begin to add it all up and we begin to see that God is orchestrating all these events, all these things, all these meetings quietly behind the scenes for their good. For example, verse two, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Just looking for somebody that will show me some favor. And she said to her, that is Naomi said to Ruth, go my daughter. And so Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And listen to this. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She just happened to come to the field of Boaz. The King James version renders it this way. Her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. It's kind of regal sounding, right? Her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. And the Puritan uh, commentator, Matthew Henry, says, this was no accidental hap. And you could really say that about almost everything happening in Ruth. What to Ruth at the moment seemed like sheer coincidence. It's part of God's gracious care. Boaz becomes an incredibly important figure in Ruth and Naomi's redemption. We learn that he plays the role of kinsman redeemer and more on that in the next few weeks. But I want you just to stop and think for a second about your own life. Are there things that have happened to you that seemed to be coincidental, right? At the time at least. But, but then when you look back on it, these are things that were monumental things. The direction of your life, how your life took shape, how your life developed. It could be somebody that you met. It could be an opportunity that was offered. It could be somebody you just happened to sit next to. Decision you made off the cuff that led to something else, that led to something else, that led to something else that shaped the very course of your life. Ruth is an invitation to open our eyes to the providential hand of God and the seeming happen chances of our lives. And not just the happen chances, but all the particular individual kindnesses that come to us through other people, Ruth would have us understand, the book of Ruth would have us understand that behind those particular kindnesses from others to us is the providential hand of God. Verse 11, Boaz praises Ruth for her incredible kindness to Naomi. He calls it out, right? He says, I've heard about all that you've done. Right, the, the kindness that Ruth is doing for Naomi. Boaz praises it. Verse 13, Ruth praises Boaz for the great kindness that's done to her, right? So verse 11, Boaz praises Ruth. Verse 13, Ruth praises Boaz. But smack dab in the middle of those verses is verse 12. And what does it say there? It says, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, behind, between, right? Smack dab in the middle of the kindnesses of others is the sheltering kindness of God. How do you think about God? Creator, ruler, king, yes, yes, yes to all those images. But I want you to add to that the image of God as a mother bird fluttering its wings 
over its vulnerable young, right? We started with a call to worship using words from the Psalms to that same effect. Here's what St. Augustine prayed in his memoir, The Confessions. He said, O Lord our God, let the shelter of your wings give us hope. Protect us and uphold us. You will be the support that upholds us from childhood till the hair on our heads is gray. When you are our strength, we are strong. But when our strength is our own, we are weak. In you, our good abides forever. And when we turn away from it, we turn to evil. Let us come home at last to you, O Lord. Sheltering kindness expressed in the law of God, expressed in the providence of God, And then finally, I want to linger here for a few minutes, sheltering kindness expressed in the people of God. And here I want to focus on Boaz. Last week, we got to talk about the kindnesses of Naomi and Ruth, but in this chapter, it's Boaz. Verse 1 tells us, first, he was a worthy man. And this is uh, less a comment on his character and more about his place or his status within the community. It's a term you would use for somebody with power, right? Somebody of significance. In fact, the name Boaz is a variation on the Hebrew word for strength. So I want you to picture the scene for a second, all right? Let's not have this be lost on us. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, they've made this difficult journey from Moab to Bethlehem. They're in the midst of mourning, right? Uh, Naomi's lost her husband. Ruth has also lost her husband. Ruth is new now in uh, Bethlehem. She's new to this place. It's not where she's from. She's exhausted. She's tired, but not as tired as Naomi, who's older. And so they need food, and and they're broke. They don't have anything. And so Ruth goes out into the fields to glean. It's what the poorest of the poor do in order to get food. But she has to be nervous. She has to be scared. And she doesn't know anybody. She's new to this place. And then all of a sudden, the powerful man, right, the one that everybody else is sort of uh, gesturing to as, as the one of significance, he's made eye contact. He's walking over to her. What would you be feeling in that moment? Sure, she was nervous, right? Because this, this encounter can go several different ways, right? I mean, you could tell her to get lost. You Moabite, get off my property. He could use his power to take advantage of her. Naomi sort of... Uh, gives voice to that concern that there's a possibility of those kind of things back down in verse 22. But instead we see Boaz using his power to show Ruth the sheltering kindness of the Lord. What does he do? Well, first Boaz welcomes her because she needed that welcome. She was an outsider. Five times in this chapter, it mentions that Ruth is from Moab. Now we already know that, right? I mean, we read that in the first chapter. Why does the narrator keep telling us over and over again, right? So that you don't forget, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the woman who's from Moab, Ruth who's the foreigner, over and over and over. It keeps mentioning it. And it's not just that Ruth is a foreigner, though that's a big thing. And Israel's called to be distinct from the nations, called out from the world. But it's not just that she's a foreigner, it's that she's from this particular place, Moab. Because Moab and Israel have a history. They've had conflicts. Ruth was a foreigner, but it's more than that. She comes from the land of the enemy. There's no way she's not feeling the pain of exclusion here. You see it in the way that she talks in verse 10. How are you even talking to me? Right when Boaz comes up, I'm a foreigner. How can you even be talking to me? I'm an outsider. I don't know if you've ever felt that pain before, right? Being left out, feeling excluded, not belonging. That's where Ruth is. And Boaz comes to her with a word of welcome. Verse 8, he says right away, he says, uh, Ruth, I, I just want you to know it's, it's okay for you to be here. 
Verse nine, why don't you join my workers? You know, keep an eye on what they're doing. If you're new to this, just, just watch what they're doing and, and you'll pick it up pretty quick. Verses 11 and 12, you know, I've heard about you, Ruth, and I've heard about your kindness to Naomi. You know, Ruth, the God of Israel is going to reward you for that. And he says this publicly. So everybody else hears what he's saying as well. Verse four, he's telling her she belongs, right? Verse 14, after they work for a while, he says, now I want you to come and I want you to eat lunch with me. Come join my table. Boaz welcomes Ruth, the outsider. But then secondly, Boaz protects her because she was in danger. Now, let me be clear, right? Uh, Ruth is not weak. That's not why I'm saying she needed protecting here. She's not weak at all. In fact, Ruth is one of the strongest, bravest, most courageous women in all of the Bible. She's a hard worker. The workers, you know, the chief guy in the field says as much to Boaz. She said, she's been here all day and she's only taken a short rest. She's a hard worker. She's tenacious. She's courageous. She's willing to leave all that she knew for the love and the care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So this is no shrinking violet. Ruth is strong. But it's important that you know that all the toughness in the world doesn't mean that you can't be harmed. All the strength in the world doesn't mean that you won't ever need help. And Ruth knows this. With all her tenacity, all her strength, Ruth is, in this chapter, constantly asking permission. Did you notice? And is, it okay, is it okay that I'm here? She's longing to find favor, it says, in someone's eyes. Maybe, maybe there'll be somebody who can help me out. And the reason for this is there is real danger for Ruth. She's a young woman in an ancient society without a husband, without a family. She's poor and without means. And three times in this story, the possibility of men harming her is mentioned. By the way, this danger still exists for women, particularly women, women in our society in general, but, but I'm thinking here particularly this particular context, women in the migrant farm work in America. There was a, a PBS frontline show several years back. It was just titled, you know exactly what it's about from the title. The title was Rape in the Fields. It talks about the near constant threat of sexual assault to female migrant workers. That's what Ruth is facing here. And Boaz moves to protect her. Verse 8, he says, I, I nor, no, know that people normally go from field to field to glean, but, but Ruth, I, I want you to stay here. You'll be safe here. Somewhere else you might get hurt, stay here. Verse 9, you know, Ruth, there's a, there's a group of women on my land. I want you to join up with them. They'll make sure you're not alone. And then verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, he says to all the men, do not put your hands on her. Don't even speak harshly to her. If you do, you're gone. Makes it very clear. Boaz welcomes her because she was an outsider. He protects her because she was in danger. Thirdly, Boaz was generous to her because she was in need. He was generous because she was in need. Naomi and Ruth didn't have anything, right? They lost their husbands and with them, their economic prospects. They had just made a long journey, so whatever they did have was used up or left behind. Boaz comes to Ruth in her need, and he pours out generous love. Verse 8, uh, the poor would normally go from field to field, right? One of the reasons for that is so as not to put the burden of support on any one landowner. But Boaz says, look, you don't need to go anywhere else. Stay here. I'll I'll take, I'll take the burden. I'll happily take the burden. Verse 9, he says, are you thirsty? 
I'll have one of my men show you where the well is and, and, and make sure they get you a drink. Verse 14, at Boaz's table, she's invited to eat bread and drink wine. Doesn't that make you think of the hospitality of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Last Supper and at the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week. It also says she eats roasted grain, and it says she eats until she's satisfied. Verse 15, the law said the poor could glean to the edges, but Boaz says to his workers, I want you to make sure she gets some of the good stuff that's in the middle as well. Verse 16, in fact, he says, why don't you get the work started for her and and pull out some of the bundles and leave it for her? It's a little easier, supplement what she's doing. Verse 17, she comes home at the end of the day with an FF of grain. And in case you don't know what an EFF was, if you didn't learn that measuring in uh, math class, an average haul for a gleaner was one to two pounds of grain. Ruth comes home with 30 pounds of grain. In case you didn't learn uh, what that was, right? 30 pounds or so. And Naomi at the end, she's blown away by all this kindness. It goes well beyond the requirements of the law. Boaz has given them so much above and beyond. The kindness of God comes to Ruth through the kindness of Boaz. Welcome because she was an outsider, protection because she was in danger, generosity because she was in need. Boaz was a sanctuary. He was base. Or at least he's holding on to base and reaching out his hand to her. And as we close up here, let me just give you a couple quick applications. All right, so more broadly, right, as a group, as a church, we need to be giving ourselves to this work of building, building sheltering institutions, right? Building institutions, things that uh, go on doing this kind of work of shelter and welcome. The church at its best is ministering word and sacrament. That's what we do here mostly, right? We create space for community. We do evangelism. We help people to raise kids so that they know the gospel. But also, this is meant to be an environment where Christians can hatch ideas to seek the good of our neighbors, to seek the good of our city. And this has been the case throughout the church's history, right? Think about hospitals and schools and orphanages and shelters. Who started those things? In most places, it was Christians. Is there something that God is calling you to start? Is something that's been laid on your heart, a need that you may want to help meet? Jesus has given you gifts. You can labor for the good of others. Maybe you're not the kind of person who thinks, all right, I don't know if I can start something new, but there's so many other things already going on. You can participate in the ongoing work of strengthening, sheltering institutions in our city and around the world. Some of the organizations that we partner with that do this kind of work, City Gospel Mission, right, provides shelter of food and and a job, or the City Link Center, which is training for a better job and a better life, back-to-back care for orphans abroad and kids in hard places in our city. Whiz kids, you can go and tutor for an hour a week and and provide the shelter of somebody to talk to and a little help with homework or Lydia's house here in Norwood, which provides literal shelter for women and children in crisis or Aruna, literal shelter again for jobs and jobs for women who have been trafficked, young lives, sheltering kindness for teen moms or ESOL, the welcoming, sheltering kindness of the immigrant, foster care and adoption, our deacons work to offer shelter and kindness to people in need inside and outside the church. So we need to be about that kind of work as a church. That's number one. But then number two, I want you to think less about institutions and just about your own life individually. 
In what ways can you be base for somebody? Right? There are people who are hurting all around you, and you have gifts to give. How can God's sheltering kindness come through you to somebody else? And there's a few kids still in here this morning, and so I'll talk to you just for a second. Kids and grown-ups, I think you can extrapolate from this. Um, you know, there are people, kids, those of you who are here, that uh, are hurting at school. It's hard to see that sometimes, but it's there. There are kids who are hurting. They feel alone. Kids who are having a hard time. And I just wonder if you could be base for somebody. Kids, you, you probably don't have any idea how much power you have to help somebody else belong. Some of the most powerful words, I'm convinced, some of the most powerful words in the English language are simply these. Do you want to play? Do you want to play? Is there somebody who's trying to fit in and it's not going well? How could you just welcome them? Do you want to play? That's God's work in you. That's like the church saying, come in. And if students were here this morning, they're on their retreat. But if students were here this morning, I'd be saying the same thing about the lunch table. You want to to come sit with me? You want to come sit at our table? Grown-ups, you can extrapolate, right? Delivering meals. Opening your home, getting to know your neighbors, a friendly, warm welcome to somebody here on a Sunday morning. These are holy callings, friends. How can you show sheltering kindness to others? How can you be base for somebody? And finally, I want to invite you, last application, to come to the Lord's Supper this morning and to do so knowing that you are taking shelter under God's wings. You know, the very first Lord's Supper was the last supper, right? Jesus with his disciples, uh, the night that he was betrayed, it's often called the last supper. And the last supper was a Passover meal. And what did the Passover celebrate, right? When God's people were in slavery in Egypt, God delivered them. And the way that they were set free, the angel of death passed over Egypt and the people of God were to sacrifice a lamb to put the blood over their doorposts. And as the angel would pass over those homes with the blood, as judgment came on the land, they took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And when Jesus is eating this Passover meal with his disciples, he said to them, now, he says, I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body for you. He took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so when we come to Jesus, what are we doing? We are taking shelter under the blood of the lamb. And the truth is you can only show the sheltering kindness of God to others when you've taken that shelter, taken refuge yourself in the sheltering kindness of God. And you can do that right now as we come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray, and then we'll do just that. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.